You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. I like that scripture verse there because it really calls us to be thankful, not for everything, because there's things that happen in our lives that we can truly say is not God's plan or God's will for us, but we can give thanks to God in every circumstance, because no matter what happens to us, God is always with us. A couple of days from now, you know, a lot of us are going to hopefully gather with family and friends and we're going to celebrate a very traditional holiday in our country called Thanksgiving. Now, it's interesting because I grew up in a time where we kind of all agreed on the purpose or the theme around Thanksgiving. Now, growing up for me, it was really a time to give thanks to God for his goodness to us as a country. And yeah, we kind of did, you know, the turkey notes, you know, turkey red, turkey blue, turkey says, I love you. We made those little notes. And there were, there were things that we, you know, did and we recognized, you know, pilgrims and the Mayflower and all that kind of fun stuff. And, and we kind of grew up, I grew up in a world where we were kind of united as a country in, in what we thought and what we believed about Thanksgiving. And again, not everybody, but the vast majority of people in our country when I grew up, we were kind of in agreement on the understanding and the theme of Thanksgiving. The first Thanksgiving in America you know, historians say was celebrated by the pilgrims in 1621. Now again, a a lot of people growing up in our country today really don't understand or know the true meaning of Thanksgiving Day and really truly what it represents. The story of the pilgrims uh, begins in the early part of the 17th century. And the Church of England at that time is uh, under King James I and he was persecuting everybody who did not recognize his absolute civil and spiritual authority. And those who believed strongly in in the freedom to worship were hunted down. Many of them were imprisoned. Some of them were martyred. There were a group of separatists who kind of fled all of that and went to Holland and they established there kind of a community. And after 11 years, 40 of these individuals agreed to make a very difficult and perilous journey to the new world, where they would certainly face hardships, but could live and worship God according to the dictates of their own conscience. So on October 1st, 1620, the Mayflower set sail. Now, it carried about 102 passengers, and it included those 40 pilgrims who were led by a man by the name of William Bradford. And while they're on this ship making the journey, Bradford kind of penned out an agreement, a covenant, a contract that kind of laid out and established just and equal laws for all the members of this new community, irrespective of their religious beliefs. 
Now again, where did these revolutionary ideas expressed in what we have come to know as the Mayflower Compact, where did these ideas that Bradford kind of came up with? Well, they came from the Old and New Testaments. As Bradford's writing this document, this agreement, this covenant, he kind of looks to the ancient Israelites for inspiration. And because these principles found in the Mayflower Compact were based upon Scripture, they had every reason to believe they would succeed. However, the journey to the new world, as they expected, it was a very difficult one. And when the pilgrims finally landed in New England in November, they found, according to Bradford's detailed journal, they found a very cold, barren wilderness. There were no friends to greet them. There were no houses to shelter them. And there were no inns where they could escape the harsh uh, environment. And the sacrifice they had made in their journey for freedom had really just begun. And really it was during that first winter, again remember, they kind of came in the midst of November, okay? And uh, didn't really give them a whole lot of time uh, to prepare for winter. So half of the pilgrims, including Bradford's wife, died either of starvation, sickness, or exposure. And when the spring finally arrived, the Indians were there and they kind of taught these new settlers how to plant corn, fish for cod, and how to skin beavers for coats. And because of all that the Indians had taught them, life greatly improved for the pilgrims, even though they had a lot more to learn in order to really succeed and thrive in this new world. Now, again, this is where most of our understanding about the significance and true meaning of Christmas kind of gets blurry. Most people believe Thanksgiving Day was a holiday for which the pilgrims gave thanks to the Indians for saving their lives. This is not true. The pilgrims may have shared meals with uh, the Indians, but this was not the basis or the focus for what we recognize as Thanksgiving Day in this country. President Lincoln was the one who declared a national day of Thanksgiving back in 1863. And this was following the, the very, very uh, tough battle of Gettysburg in which 50,000 Americans were killed. Now again, it had nothing to do with the pilgrims or their journey to the new world. It's not even mentioned in, in Lincoln's declaration. I looked, I read it this week. In that declaration, Lincoln called the citizens to set aside the last Thursday of November as a day of giving thanks to God, to seek repentance for hardened hearts for our disobedience, to ask God to heal the wounds of our divided nation. Any of this sound kind of familiar right now when we talk about a divided nation? And he said he, he saw this as a time to pray for comfort for those who had lost loved ones in the Battle of Gettysburg. And he did all of this in accordance with the commands of Scripture. That is 
the true history of Thanksgiving Day. As a matter of fact, back when they did this, it was not really a call to feast. It was a call to penance. It was a call to fasting. It was a call to prayer. Lincoln was trying to unite a divided country. And somewhere along the way, we kind of conflated uh, the events of the pilgrims with Lincoln's declaration. The true meaning of Thanksgiving Day is a day that is set aside to give thanks to God, to give thanks for his goodness and his mercy, to just once again ask God, would you heal this land? Would you unite a divided nation? and continue to bless and guide us as a nation. Again, just as the scriptures call us to do. Listen to what God's word says in Colossians 3.15. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule and reign over your hearts. For as members of one body, we are called to live, to dwell together in peace and always, always, always be thankful. Scripture kind of recognizes the act of thanksgiving, of of giving thanks, of being grateful. It is an amazing medicine. When we are thankful, worries begin to cease. When we are thankful, when we just begin to give thanks, complaining kind of has a way of disappearing. As we're thankful to God, it says peace will begin to come and it will begin to rule and to reign over our hearts. When we learn and we just begin to express thankfulness, when we kind of again develop that attitude of gratitude, we are on the way to becoming joyful, contented people. It spares us from being complaining, critical, angry, depressed, fighting, divided people. That's where we find ourselves right now as a nation. Thanksgiving has a marvelous, healing, soothing quality to people who begin to just walk in that to begin to express that. As you read the Bible, what you'll discover is what the pilgrims discovered. And that is thanksgiving. It is found throughout the scripture. The children of Israel, as a matter of fact, they had special days set aside for thanksgiving where they again would just come to the Lord and they would bring offerings and they would express their gratitude and their thankfulness to him. In fact, some of the Levites were set aside particularly to lead God's people in the exercise of thanksgiving. And then when you pick up the Jewish hymn book, you know, we kind of call it the book of Psalms, but it's really the Jewish hymn book. You'll find out there are many, many Psalms in there that are dedicated to this theme of thanksgiving. Psalm 100 and verse four, for example, says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. Many times throughout the book of Psalms, it tells us to just give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and his mercy. Psalms 106 verse one is one such place. It says, praise you, Lord, Lord, 
Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. He's the very definition of good. And, and it goes on to say, his mercy endures forever. How many of you are thankful that God's mercy endures forever? I am, because I'm in need of God's mercy every day. Then you go to the New Testament, and you find, it, it, again, Thanksgiving, it's just scattered all over the pages in the New Testament. You will find that Thanksgiving is connected with prayer. You see, when Jesus, uh, before he ate meals, he would pray and give thanks to the Father. When Jesus broke the bread, uh, the communion, lifted up the cup of, of the wine that represented his blood, he does all of that, giving thanks to God the Father. The Apostle Paul, uh, in prayer, would often link his prayers with giving thanks. In one such place, Philippians 1.3, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Paul saying every time he thought of the people that God had placed in his life, he just gave thanks for those people. And he said, I give thanks upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making request with thanksgiving. So prayer, again, it is a vital part of thanksgiving. Praise also is a very, very integral part of giving thanks. When we praise the Lord, one of the things that we do is one of the ingredients of our praise to the Lord. Again, it is our gratitude, it's our thankfulness that, that God is who he is, that God does what he does. Hebrews 13, 15 says, let us therefore offer unto him our sacrifice to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. So again, prayer and thanksgiving go together. Praise and thanksgiving go together. Now if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I got great news for you. Though every day is certainly not a holiday, every day is and can be Thanksgiving Day. Because every day we are given the opportunity to give thanks and to be grateful for who God is and for what he does. And I'm gonna share with you today three things. If you came here this morning and you just are struggling to find something to be thankful for, I wanna share three things with you this morning as a Christ follower that you can be truly grateful for. And if you're not a Christ follower, I hope these three things will kind of maybe open your heart and mind to consider becoming a Christ follower because the, this is what God has for you and is made available to every one of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The first thing is, is I am thankful every day that God stands for me. Romans 8, 31, if you've got your Bible, you can open up. We're gonna be in Romans 8 here for a while this morning. And there it says, what then shall we say to these things since God is for us, who is against us? That's a great question. Yeah, glory, glory's right. If God is for you, who can be against you? 
This is actually kind of a rhetorical question that gives us a definitive answer no matter how the question is asked. I mean, to the question, who, the answer is nobody can be against us. To the question of what can be against us, the answer is nothing can be against us. To the question of when, never can anything be against us. To the question of where, nowhere can anything be against us. Again, when you read the Bible, and you, you often find some of the greatest lessons that are taught there is this. If God is for you, and it's just you and God, it's all you need. As a matter of fact, it's more than enough. If it's just you and God, you are, you've got the advantage. Joseph learned that in prison. Job learned that in the midst of calamity. Joshua learned that very lesson at Jericho. Jonah learned that lesson sitting in the belly of a whale. David learned that lesson as he stared down Goliath. Daniel learned that lesson in the lion's den. Elijah learned that lesson on Mount Carmel. Moses learned that lesson at the Red Sea. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they learned that lesson in the fiery furnace. Paul and Peter learned that lesson sitting in prison. And one of the greatest promises to me in the entire Bible and one that every follower of Jesus Christ should really have kind of written down, highlighted, and marked in their Bibles is Isaiah 54, 17, and that says no weapon. No weapon that is formed against you will prevail. It will not prosper. Every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. How can we be so confident in light of what we know and what we face every single day? Again, listen to Romans chapter eight, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son. Paul's saying there, God did not spare his own son. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered Jesus over for us all. He died once for all. How will he, God, not also with Christ freely now give us all things. Now, we call this um, an argument from the greater to the lesser. This is an argument we call from the greater to the lesser. If God gave his son to you and I before we were saved, what will he not give us after we are saved? The greater, the greatest gift that God gave us was Jesus. And if God has given us the greatest gift he could ever give us before we were saved, what will he also give to us after we are saved? If God gave his son to you and I, 
while we were sinners, while we were enemies of the cross, while we were rebellious, if God gave us his greatest gift in his son Jesus Christ, what will he not now give to us once we become his sons and his daughters? In the book of Genesis, there's a story of Abraham and his son Isaac. God asked Abraham to offer up his one and only son as a sacrifice. And incredibly, without a whimper, without a gripe, without a complaint, Abraham simply in obedience surrendered his son to God's command. Now I'm sure that there was, you know, struggle I'm sure that there was maybe some conflict in the heart of Abraham as he starts to offer his son to the Lord for a sacrifice. And again, if you're not familiar with the story, God did not allow that sacrifice to take place. Right before Abraham plunged that knife into Isaac, God provided a ram in the thicket. But again, this was used to kind of illustrate and to demonstrate Abraham's faith and obedience. With this in mind, let me ask you a question. God asked Abraham for his son, and Abraham gave it. Do you think if God asked Abraham for his tithe, do you think Abraham would not have given it? Yeah, if he's willing to give his son the greatest why would he not also be willing to give the tithe? If God had asked Abraham for his time, do you think Abraham would have given God his time? Of course. If God asked Abraham for his time, his talents, his treasures, do you think Abraham would have given them? Of course. He was willing to give the greatest, he'd also be willing to give the lesser things. And again, here's the point. If a man will offer you his son, there's certainly nothing else he wouldn't give you if you ask it. Honestly, there's no one on this planet I would ever give any of my kids for. Let's assume that you're my worst enemy and I gave one of my children for you. Would you not think I'd also give you his clothes, his iPhone, his house if he had it, a car if he had it, if you ask? Of course, if I would give you my son, then I, I would give you everything they owned. And by the very fact that we know that God did indeed give his son for us, then in our greatest time of need, do you not think God will give everything else and anything else that we need? There's a story that kind of illustrates this about a very wealthy Roman who had a son who was rebellious and would often do things that would break the father's heart. And he also had with him a servant who was more to him like a true son and on his deathbed, this father decided to disinherit his son and leave everything to his slave, whose name was Marcellus. After the man died, the will was read, and the executor, speaking to the son, said this, the will says that your father has deeded everything he owns to his slave, Marcellus. Now you can imagine that maybe how angry and disappointed and upset the son would be at hearing this. Then the executor said, however, your father has said you may choose one item from the estate 
that your father left, you can choose one item for yourself. The wayward son stopped and he thought for a moment and then he said, I will take Marcellus. Think about it. When you accept Jesus Christ, you get everything God has. If God gave you his son, the greatest gift, he will give you anything and everything else you need. Second thing you can personally be thankful for every day, I am thankful every day that God stands with me. Listen to Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Now the phrase bring a charge is represented by one word in the Greek language, and it's a legal term. And it literally means to indict or to make a formal accusation. So the question is, who would bring a charge, an indictment, an accusation against one of God's children that they are not worthy to go to heaven? Who would make the claim that anyone is not worthy of God's love? that they are not worthy of salvation or eternal life. Now we know from the word of God that the one who does this is someone by the name of Satan. And in Revelation chapter 12 verse 10, he is called the accuser or the indicter of the brethren. And it says, the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. The one who accuses or makes accusation before our God day and night. So one of the things Satan spends a lot of time on doing in the courtroom, in the presence of God, is he is a prosecuting attorney trying to condemn you and I for the times that we have failed and not followed what God has called us to do. So it says that he he stands there before God every day and he's making accusation against you and I. He's bringing indictment after indictment. God, did you see this, what they did? God, did you hear that, what they said? God, did you see what they didn't do that they should have done? God, did you hear what they didn't say that they should have said? And he's just constantly making accusation to God day and night. Now again, the truth of the matter is, When Satan brings an accusation to God about you and I, about our sins, about our conduct, about our language, uh, again, he has us dead to rights. It's not hearsay. It's not circumstantial evidence. The truth of the matter is after you become a follower of Christ, you will sin. You will still do wrong. You will still say things you should not say you're still gonna fail God. I mean, just do a recounting of your life this last week. How many of you had even one thought that passed through your mind that shouldn't have passed through? Did you say something about someone else to someone else that you shouldn't have said? Here's one that'll get most of us. Did you fail to do something that you should have done? 
Or did you do something you shouldn't have done? Maybe you've gone the last seven days and you haven't prayed, or you've gone the last week and you haven't opened up God's word. The bad news is when hell's district attorney, Satan, brings a case against you and I in God's court, he has us dead to right. What he doesn't understand is the case against you is fixed. Because the judge is also our defense attorney. Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and what is he doing? Intercedes for you. Intercedes for you and I. So, so get this picture. God is in heaven. The devil is there making accusation against you. He's indicting you over everything you've done wrong. And what is Jesus doing? He's at the right hand of the Father. And it says he's interceding. He is your defense attorney. Now the word here for condemn is another legal term that refers not to the indictment, but to the verdict, to the judgment that is given. Now if, if you stop and think about this, I mean, you know, God's got a sense of humor, okay? Can you imagine being in God's courtroom and the devil is kind of the prosecuting attorney and, and he brings in this briefcase just full of the things you and I have done wrong. And we're there, and we need a defense attorney. 1 John 2, 1 says, but if you do sin, there is someone to plead for you before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who pleases God completely. Now, the Greek word for the one who pleads our case literally means legal counsel or defense attorney. Now, you may be thinking right now, I got a shot at beating this rap. I, I got a shot here of being declared innocent because after all, my defense attorney is Jesus Christ. He fully pleases God. But I want you to know, it gets better than that. Do you know who the judge is? John 5, 22 says, the father leaves all judgment to the son. Are you starting to get the picture here? The defense attorney is also the judge. Are you kind of beginning to see the court is kind of rigged here? The case is kind of fixed. If the devil wasn't so evil, you could almost kind of feel sorry for him. Can you imagine how frustrated the devil gets every time he brings a case, an accusation against you? He calls witness after witness. He has exhibits A through Z. He has pictures, photographs, tape recordings, signed confessions, and the defense never calls a witness. They get up to give closing arguments. The devil makes this very eloquent, impassioned, airtight case against you. He points out all the evidence that he has that proves you guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And then our defense attorney, Jesus Christ, doesn't say a word. He just stands up, holds up his nail-pierced hand, shows it to the judge, the gavel comes down, and the verdict is rendered, not 
guilty case dismissed. Do you know why if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you never, ever have to fear the prosecution of the devil? Because your case has been settled out of court. The Bible makes it very clear. Jesus died for your sin, for my sins, for the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future. And the resurrection is the proof that God accepted that debt, that payment, in full for our sins. That's why even on my worst days as a Christian, when I blow it, when I fail, when I fall so just short of the glory of God, I can still be thankful because I know in spite of me, in spite of it all, God stands with me. The last thing we can always be thankful for every day is I am thankful every day that God stands by me. Romans 8, 35 through 39 says this, who will separate you, separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in these things, what things? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. In all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through the one who loved us. He says, for I am convinced, and I pray as you walk out here this morning, you will be convinced as well that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love this passage because it begins with no condemnation and that it ends with no separation. I've never done math well, right, Blake? Yep, amen, amen. I always avoid most things in life that involve math. So if I can understand what I'm about to say, being given my being so mathematically challenged, there is hope for each one of you. Have you ever thought about the fact that there is an applied mathematics to salvation? Here's how it works. God came to us as sinners and he added grace and mercy to our lives. And then he subtracted by taking our sins from us and then he multiplies forgiveness through our lives and therefore there can be no division of our life from his life. I've told you this before, I'll say it again. You can never, ever, ever do anything so bad that it will make God love you less than he loves you right now. Okay, you, you never can. And I'm not encouraging you to go out and, and put this to the test. I'm just telling you as you look back on your past mistakes, there's nothing you've ever done in your life. 
I don't care how bad. I don't care how numerous times you've done that. There's nothing that you can ever do that will make God love you any less than he already does. And his love for you right now is at its fullest. It's at its completest. It'll never, ever get better than it is right now. You can never, ever do anything so good. Okay, not only will you never do anything so bad, but you'll never, ever do anything so good. I don't care how good it is, and I don't care how many times you do that good thing. There's nothing that you can do good that will make God love you more than he loves you right now. And that is why the Apostle Paul goes on to say in verse 37, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. The Greek word there for overwhelmingly conquer is a word that literally means, if you want to interpret it correctly, it means you are a super conqueror, okay? And it comes from two words, the word Nike, if you've ever seen the symbol or worn Nike, that means victor or victory, and the word hyper, which means over and above. So you are victorious above and beyond. Do you know what the difference is between a conqueror and a super conqueror? A conqueror is someone who fights a battle and wins it. A super conqueror is someone who knows the battle is won before they even begin to fight. I heard about a man, I'm going to close with this story, about a man who was one time bragging to a bunch of kids about how strong he was. And he said to those kids, I am so strong that one time I took a pocket knife and with that pocket knife, I cut off the tail of a man-eating lion. Kids are like huge eyes looking at this man. And they said, wow, that's unbelievable. Why didn't you cut his head off? And the man said, oh, somebody had already done that. <laughs> Somebody's already taken the head off the beast. And I understand as well, if not better, than anyone in this room, life is a battle. Life has its challenges. Life has its obstacles. It's not easy. And sometimes it just seems with each passing day, especially the times we're living in right now, it just seems with each passing day, Things just seem to get more difficult, more trying, more challenging. And the reality is, every one of us, you're gonna have good days, and you're gonna have bad days. But I want you to know, and I want you to be thankful that on your worst days, it's still an opportunity to be thankful. It's an invitation to be grateful because you know and you love and you are loved and you serve a God that stands for you, stands with you, and stands by you. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, again, we just thank you for this marvelous truth. And God, you do give us so much to be thankful for. And God, I understand there are just times where things in life really begin to crowd out and overshadow and block out all of the good things that you're doing. That God, even in our worst days, our worst moments, God, you're still at work blessing 
and standing with us and for us and by us, that God, you never leave us, you never forsake us. And Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for his resurrection. We thank you that he stands at your right hand and he continues to intercede, to pray, to defend us. And Father, I pray this morning that as we walk out of this place, Lord, that we will walk out of here knowing that despite how we may be feeling right now, despite the things that may be going on in our lives this morning, that we have the ability, we have the invitation, we have the power to walk out of here as super conquerors, knowing that we have overwhelmingly conquered and overcome anything and everything life tries to throw at us. And again, it's not because of us, but it's because of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for people here this morning that maybe don't know Jesus. And Father, I thank you for a scripture that says that Jesus just stands at the door of their heart and, they, and he just knocks. Gently, patiently, continually knocking at the door of your heart. The Bible says if you'll just open that door, if you'll just invite him in, The Bible says that he will come into your heart. He'll come into your life. I don't care how messy that life is. He will come into that heart. He will come into that life. And he'll just make himself at home there. And he will begin to just work. And he'll begin to rearrange the furniture. He'll begin to help you clean up the messes. And he will begin what we would call restoration. He will begin to renew your mind. He'll begin to renew your heart. He'll begin to allow that peace of Christ to rule and reign over your heart. So Father, those that don't know you, I pray, Father, that they would come to find that reality this morning. And we thank you for your scripture that says that if we just confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. If we'll just make that statement with our mouth this morning, Jesus is Lord. And if we just believe in our hearts that you raised him from the dead, that we'll be saved. And Father, we thank you that it is that simple. And yet, Father, we thank you for the miracle of that. And I pray this morning, Father, that people here would find the miracle of salvation through that confession of their mouth and that belief of their heart. And for those of us that have, Father, we pray, Lord, you'll just continue to build us up, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to comfort us, Lord, that we can continue to walk on overwhelmingly conquering anything and everything because Jesus is with us, for us, and by us. And all of God's people said, amen. If you're here this morning, we just invite you. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.